This episode of Roadwork is brought to you by Mac Weldon. Mac Weldon is better than whatever you're wearing right now. They believe in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. I shopped there. I bought stuff there. It couldn't be easier. And uh, you're going to love it too, I think. They make the most comfortable underwear, sock shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants you'll ever wear. You want to wear what John Roderick wears? We all do. He wears the silver underwear. It has actual silver inside of it, making it antimicrobial. It means that uh, it eliminates odor. Go check it out. You can go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using the promo code ROADWORK. Keep that in mind while you're shopping around. 20% off underwear, socks, shirts that look good and perform well too. Thanks very much to MacWeldon.com. Promo code ROADWORK to save 20%. And you'll understand why I did this spot up at the top of the show once you hear the show. Here we go. Hey, Dan Benjamin. Hey, John. How are you? <clears throat> I'm good. How are you? Good. I'm still... That was a heavy, heavy episode last time. Heavy show. Hmm. Mm. Got a lot of feedback on that one. Yeah, we talked a lot about uh, weird celebs. And then, <laughs> as is usually the case in the last 10 or 15 minutes, um, uh, somehow arrived at a long polemical. Oh, yeah? I mean, you know, I thought it was... I thought it's good. It's nice to land on a polemical. Well, I mean, how I didn't think what you said was especially controversial. No, no. Well, except that, except right now, like the left does, the left loves to critique and theorize. That's true. But the left has a, and the love, the, I'm sorry, the left loves to critique and theorize about itself. Okay. But it's generally one component of the left theorizing about another component of the left and chastising and, uh, you know, and in some way, in some way spelling out how, how one component of the left is failing to meet their obligations. Okay. But it's very hard for any one particular slice of the left to reflect upon itself. And so there's a lot of like, um, there's a lot of infighting, family fighting. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things that defines the left mm-hmm. and the, and the right does it too within itself. But it's very hard for any one component to say, to sit on the, their hands for a second and say like, what role am I? I mean, it's so easy for Bernie bros, for instance. Okay. And I know Bernie bros hate being called Bernie bros, but I'm sorry. That's what you are. You have established that you are Bernie bros. Um, Bernie bros hate being called Bernie bros by like middle-aged liberals like myself. Oh, there's nothing they hate more than middle-aged liberals because middle-aged liberals are letting the whole cause down by virtue of our, our middle-agedness, our failure to appreciate that radical action is what's required. And we're just comfortable in our little, you know, with our home ownership and our, you know, our PTA meetings and we're not, uh, we're not making the bold steps. In fact, we're holding people back with our democratic party and it's, you know, and it's structures and it's slow motion. And there are a lot of, there's a lot of 
energy right now in young in young leftists and they don't have the it's not even in their nature as young people because when i was a young leftist i didn't i wasn't particularly self-reflective either but there's <clears throat> there's a lot of feeling that uh, that truth is on their side, that justice is on their side, and that middle-aged liberals are out of touch, and that ultimately that out-of-touchness has always been true of those people, right? That middle-aged liberals were always middle-aged even when they were 22 because they didn't – that was not the that was not ever the left, you know? It's, it's really easy for a 22-year-old to believe that they're the first people that ever conceived of civil rights. Right. And all those 65-year-olds that devoted their whole lives to fighting for civil rights back when it was, you know, it was a lot harder than it is now, frankly. They're just all collectively kind of swept into the dustbin. And and so Bernie bros are not very self-reflective. I mean, I was online the other day and some obviously young person, you could tell by the way they wrote, said, if you sympathize with Nazis, you're a Nazi sympathizer, full stop. And I was like, huh, that's a very, um, I see why that rolls off your tongue. You know what I mean? Like that's a, uh, that's very convenient. Or I mean, it, it sounds logical. If you sympathize with Nazis, you're a Nazi sympathizer. Right. But it's not true, first of all. And second of all, like, sympathizing with Nazis is a real simplification and a real reduction of the process of looking at the other side and wondering what they're all about. That taking a moment to reflect does is, is not the same as a like sympathizing with their beliefs mm-hmm. and, and to, to go the and so so anyway i mean i'm i am like a very public leftist and there's nothing that there's no insult greater to a young person than to say to me well you're not a leftist you're a liberal and it's like oh boy where where uh, do you draw the line be- between those two or how do you well because i'm not um I'm not sufficiently radical. I mean, that's always been the, that's always been the distinction between leftist and liberal. The fact that I want to take a second to reflect incites in young people, an immediate desire to quote Martin Luther King from the early sixties saying that the real enemy of civil rights is not the, uh, is not the Ku Klux or Ku Klux Klan member but in fact is the go slow liberal uh. who wants who who claims to want civil rights but we have to you know we have to be patient we can't we can't do this uh this very public protests and this this um like implication of pending violence that type of thing the uh the street protests and the throwing the tear gas canisters back scares the white liberal and makes the white liberal uncomfortable. And that uncomfortableness is the actual enemy of, of, of the progression of civil rights much more so than the person in the white robe standing on the other side of the cops. And that is a, 
that's a, a very like appealing reduction of the of the white liberal like oh here they are with their mealy mouthness and their foot dragging and their discomfort right everybody can identify with like the upper west side manhattanite who supports the arts and is a is a friend in word to civil rights but becomes uncomfortable when civil rights gets too close to their to their apartment. Right. Right. And so to apply that blanket assessment of, you know, this, this sort of uncomfortable, uh, this uncomfortable person who stands athwart progress and says, slow down, slow down to describe every action of, of like momentary reflection and every criticism, frankly, of, um, of like street action, progressive, uh, revolutionary behavior to say in some instances, like now, hold on, what is, how is this, how is this like helping our strategic goals to be at all strategic, let's say to sort of blanket describe the, that behavior with this, um, this denunciation of like slow moving liberalism is, uh, you know, it's a conceit of people that haven't, well, people that aren't thinking strategically. And likewise, there are tons and tons of white liberals that do not understand how important it is to protest and to throw back the tear gas grenades and to advance progress. And they are, you know, they are foot draggers and they are, let's say, dismissive. They're just, they're just contemptuous and dismissive of young people. Anyway, so it isn't what, what we talked about last week isn't controversial, except that. The controversial may be coming from you. Well, just, just that liberals hate, liberals like to hate one another more than almost anything else. It's their favorite pastime. And, you know, I was thinking, I was thinking yesterday that obviously I've, I've put a lot of thought into this topic. I've spent a lot of my life fighting Nazis back when Nazis were back Nazis in the Pacific Northwest, you know, they were trying to make a white homeland up here. The cops fought the Nazis up here in, in a, in like they surrounded their compounds and burned them out you know, shot it out with guns uh, back in the, in the eighties when I was coming up and they were all around, you know, they were like, if you were, if you were a punk rocker at those shows, you know, the Nazis were there, they would come in and you knew they were there. They were, they were, they were physically threatening. Um, but to say at any point right now, because the the left is all like really militarized right now because we feel under assault by this insane thing that's happening in our national government. Just pure insanity every minute of every day. The left is really like hackles up, uh, knives out. And it's a, it's a very dangerous time to be a, uh, like an internal critique of the leftist response. 
and to say in any way, like, does this strategically advance our project? Because if you're following, if you're following this situation on the internet, you can really feel like literal Nazis are at the door. Right. And literal Nazis are not at the door. You know, there are people being put into the government who are crazy people. You know, people that believe that the that UFOs are under the North Pole. I mean, be way beyond, way beyond who should ever be given the reins of even like even small branches of the government, let alone the National Security Advisor. But if you follow American politics, the president has a lot of power and the, the executive branch has a lot of power, but it's not unchecked power. And the fact that there's a conservative Republican majority in the Congress gives the, the combination of those things a lot of power, but it's not unchecked power. And there's, you know, like they shut down the EPA.gov yesterday and there's a lot of, there's a lot of panic about what's about to come and a lot of, a lot of understandable panic. But my first question is when's the last time anybody went to EPA.gov? Right. Uh, Never. Or the first time anyone ever did. Or the first time. But, but also like panicking isn't going to advance our cause. Uh, Screaming at each other isn't going to advance our cause. And frankly, I mean, this all started with that punch of the Nazi guy, Richard Spencer, which was a very gratifying punch to watch. Like, I think every, I under, has everyone seen that? Do you think everyone's seen that? I think so. Okay. I mean, the schadenfreude of watching him with his smug little bow tie standing there all content in his hipster fascism, his hipster white nationalism, which you can absolutely tell he just thinks is a cool costume. You know, I mean, he's, he's expressing a sort of frat boy nationalism. Right. Um, that has always been a component of frat bros, but he's got TV cameras pointed at him. He thinks he's a pretty cool cat and he gets punched by, uh, by a, a person in the sort of now traditional anarchist costume hoodie, uh, face mask and it's a sucker punch he doesn't see it coming and that's part of the schadenfreude of it that's a, like, a dry gulch if you will yeah that's like oomph. but what i was saying online is strategically it's a super bad move because as gratifying as it is the argument that nazis are violent and you can't reason with them therefore you need to take the violence to them is like is to miss two crucial points. One of which is the left, like to believe that because these violent racists are now in positions of power, that the way to counter that is to resort to the same techniques that they use to also be, uh, to beat them up basically. Like you can't reason with them. So the only other option is to beat them up is to abdicate the whole premise of liberalism, which is that's not how we do. 
We don't put government in place because of threat of violence. We don't counter violent racist nationalism with violent progressive liberalism. Because if you, if you put a thing in place through violence, if you defeat your enemies through violence, that is a, the power that you accrue to yourself will be completely corrupted. Like do not believe that you can defeat your enemy. And I'm talking about, and, and again, I get a lot of pushback from people that is like, what about war? What about when we defeated our enemy in world war two? And there's, there's no comparison between that and the domestic politics of the United States. Like if this guy, Richard Spencer was standing in front of that guy spitting in his face and saying, you know, fuck you. You're going into the camps. Absolutely. Punch him in the nose. He has earned a punch in the nose, <laughs> but that punch in his face was a punch delivered unto him because of his execrable politics. He is in some ways a politician and is a politician with whom we all virulently disagree, but to punch somebody and to celebrate that punch as a political move is terrible strategy. And it's because a, the Nazis will always be more violent than us. And they are looking for a reason to be violent. They're looking for a reason to feel like the left is out of control and needs to be suppressed. That's already what they're doing. They look at black lives matter and they say, look, they're taking over our streets. They are, you know, they're animals. They're shooting at each other in Chicago. We need to crack down. We need martial law. We need to suppress these, this rebellion. And the more ammunition we give that, like they will always bring more violence than we're capable of doing. And so to, you know, to punch this character and to punch him multiple times or to think that taking that kind of violence to the streets is, is in any way like a positive action on behalf of the left, a renunciation of Nazism. Um, it's just, a, it's just not strategic. Right. Because what's going to happen next is they're going to respond. There's going to be some violent retribution. There's going to be more violence from the right. And unfortunately the left and the Bernie bro side of, of the world is going to take that as a validation of that action. They're going to say, see, you can't reason with them. You have to fight them in on these terms. You have to fight them on their terms. And that's part of the lack of reflection that no one's ever wrong anymore. So you punch this guy and then his people punch you back harder and you don't, there's no one ever takes a step back and says, you know what? We shouldn't have punched him. Not, and, and, and it's, it's a little bit internet tough guy. Like none of the uh, 99% of the people that are, that are really like enjoying that punch have never been in a fight. Mm. They're not prepared to go down into the streets and literally fight. And there are a lot of 24 year olds who think they are prepared to do that, but they've never done it and they don't know what it looks like and they don't know what it feels like and they don't want it. You know, they're not, they have not been training for the race war the same way that the, that the crazies on the right have. I mean, all you have to do is go, uh, go Google. I mean, I suggest you Google fortify your neighborhood. Okay. 
you Google fortify your neighborhood and you will find all these blogs that are talking in the following terms. Once you've fortified your home and turned it into an unassailable castle, now you need to start thinking about how to fortify your neighborhood, figure out what the entry and access roads are and how you will block those roads by felling trees and how you will get, you know, where the high points in your neighborhood are and where the clear lines of fire are so that when you're, when the unnamed rebel zombies who come into your neighborhood to raid after the, after the disintegration of society, when those rebel zombies start to encroach upon your neighborhood, you need to protect your wife and kids by securing the, you know, the whole area before you can, this is, this is a, what you need to do as you're preparing to decamp to the mountains or whatever. There are like, there are whole sections of that crazy land that have been preparing for this for years. There's nothing they want more. It's in fact, it's their only plan, right? This is this. They're counting on this. Yeah. Donald Trump doesn't want to run the government. Donald Trump wants to destroy the country and, and incite the civil war that is going to cleanse our nation of the polluted blood of the darks and the, and the liberals, the liberals who are worse than worse, even than immigrants. So the, there's the strategy of just like, we don't defeat them on the street. We defeat them by, by using our, superior intelligence and greater vision. And it isn't easy. It isn't easy to do. And it isn't appeasement and it isn't white liberal foot dragging. It's fucking knowing how to wage an actual war. It's the art of war. You don't expend your energy. You let your enemy expend their energy. And so lately on the, uh, you know, ever since that punch, there's this new meme, which is various people. It's very easy to do on Twitter saying, boy, if you're upset about that Nazi getting punched, how do you feel about this total degradation of our civil rights link to latest news? And again, it's like, that's not what's happening. I'm not upset that. Richard Spencer got punched in the face. Like I'm not upset for him or wringing my hands about whether it's nice to punch somebody or not. Like I, I want nothing more than for Richard Spencer to, to truly put himself in the line of fire where it's a justified line of fire. I'm saying it's, it is a um, betrayal of what makes the left uh, morally superior. I mean, we have the high ground. We need to maintain the high ground and everything we do. That's, that's momentarily gratifying, but that doesn't think strategically about how to regain control is, is just kid stuff, you know? And we have to, we have to think longer term. We have to think it's in a superior way and it's not always 
the most gratifying way to wage a war because the results happen further out and the results are there's there's less immediate bloodshed and a lot more like huh i wonder what happened like all of a sudden things have changed and we're and we're neutering our enemies that's what we do we neuter them we let them burn themselves out we let them fight dumb battles this fucking mexican wall is hilarious if they spend 15 billion dollars trying to build this wall yeah. oh my god let them drain their treasury let them there's no you know like they're already not going to fund the arts let's just assume not that the arts were particularly well funded under any under obama even. right right but let them direct their attention to this craziness you know it's unconstitutional to do a lot of the things they're proposing and the courts will that's why that's why I'm giving a lot of money to the ACLU. Like the courts will continue to operate. And the courts are reasonable. There are a lot of Democrats in Congress. There are like the city of Seattle has begun a process of of preparing to refuse federal money. Because the federal government the only thing that they can the only way they can exert pressure on states is through the budget. They give us tons and tons of money, the federal government, and they've threatened to take it away if we don't obey. And city of Seattle is starting to say like, well, we'll go without rather than implement these laws that we find abhorrent. And the city of Seattle has the authority to do it. They just, we just have to figure out a way to work around the lack of, of these huge balls of money. And it's just one way that the rebellion begins. You know, the, that is an example of true action that has a, that has a, a profound effect and a lasting effect that is, that's bigger and bigger and quieter than than yelling and marching you know and that's the goal the goal of marching is not to wage a war against actual nazis who are standing across the street the goal of marching is to communicate to the mayor of seattle that there are that there is a a citywide conviction that this is the that that we should pursue this radical course and and he hears the message he shares it because we voted him into office and he's you know he's a foot dragon liberal himself but he gets what where we're at so but it's very difficult right now i'm sure there are people listening to this program who are who are writing down on three by five cards all the ways in which they disagree with me and all the ways in which we need to take the fight to the Nazis. But honestly, and all of this comparison to 1934 or 1938, it's all specious. There's no, there is no comparison. It's easy to say like, this is how it began, but this isn't how it began. 
But even if it were how it began, uh, in 1934, if all of the Jews in Germany had started fist fighting with Nazis, it would not have changed history. It would have expedited the process. You know, you can't, the Jews could not have risen up in Germany at that point in time and formed militias and fought them in the streets. The, that, that rebellion would have been violently suppressed. Like, it would not have particularly, I don't think, changed German opinion in a positive way toward protecting the Jews. Like, there are things that, you know, there are, there are political situations that are just like, this is, this is truly fucked. And, and thinking about what happened in history, oh, we all want to say, like, it wouldn't, we wouldn't have allowed it. We, you know, it's it's a fucking cliche to, to say whether or not you, as the Nazis came to take your neighbors, whether or not you would have stood up. Now, I mean, how but, can you put yourself in that position unless you were truly in that position? Well, yeah. And, and the implication of that kind of thinking is that all that every person in Germany was morally corrupt. And again, that's a very youthful reduction of the of the way the world is like there were as many moral people in germany as many people prepared to swing their fists on behalf of justice as there are in america i mean this was one of the crazy things about my walk across germany i looked for nazism everywhere i looked for it in the little towns i looked for it in the forests and the Germans have erased it. They have erased any sign of national socialism. There are like, there are little bridges and culverts in out in the woods that were clearly built by the Nazis that had a little swastika on them. And someone has come out into the forest and chipped the swastika away. Hmm. Like it's been erased. The only signs I saw in in years of visiting Germany where I, and I, I, I may have talked to you about this or maybe described it to Merlin, or maybe it's just that I wrote it in my book, but there's a little chapel up in the mountains outside of Garmisch Partenkirchen that is a, you know, like it's one of those crazy little German forest chapels that are really a place to worship nature gods. But if you go around the back of the chapel outside facing the weather, there are framed photographs of all of the, all of the Wehrmacht soldiers from Garmisch who died in the war. It's like a little, uh, a little temple to their relatives. It's not a shrine to Nazism. It's just a place where they allowed themselves the luxury of putting up the, their, the pictures of their sons and husbands. Right. And I found it and I was startled and stunned that it existed, but it's, you know, the Bavarians are a little bit out. They're a little bit more tree worshiper and they, and they allowed themselves this. And then there was one other time I was in a museum of, of like a coal mine. I was going through this little town and they were like, we had a coal mine here. And, uh, and we have a little museum devoted to coal mining. 
And I was like, sure, why not? It's a town of 500 people. It's, I just, I slept on the side of the road last night. I just woke up. The museum's opening at eight o'clock in the morning and I'm headed through, I'm going right by it. Why don't I spend 20 minutes in here? And I walked around and there were framed pictures of all the miners dating back to the dawn of photography. You know, there were pictures from the 1800s of all the miners arrayed in front of the mine and year by year. And as I walked through, I was like, oh, this is going to be interesting. Do the pictures of the mine from 1936 to 1945 are, do they survive? Because in a lot of Germany, you don't see those pictures, you know, the it's pictures and pictures and pictures. And then in 1936, they're, they're strangely missing. But in this little museum, there were pictures of the mine throughout the war. And a couple of years, there were uh, swastika flags hanging in the background. And it was, again, really startling to see because so much of that stuff has been erased there. But my experience of it was, oh, the Germans are as liberal a democracy as any. They're as much a liberal democracy as the United States was then, maybe more of one now. And in living memory, they were like systematically burning people in ovens. In living memory, those people that I'm passing in the streets, the old people were there. You know, they were there and, and some of them complicit. And so, I mean, my takeaway was it's lurking. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's lurking everywhere all the time. And liberalism is a bulwark against it. Like government is a bulwark and democracy is a bulwark against it, but it's not, it's not some anomaly. It's not a, it's not a mental illness confined to Germany in the twenties and thirties. And when I see young leftists also pursuing what amount to uh, stormtrooper tactics mm -hmm. in advance of their own political ideology, which they think is unimpeachable. It is just as scary in the sense that that's not what we're trying to build. There's less violence in the world now than there's ever been. There's, there's less war. There's a guy named Max Roser who's a statistician mm -hmm. and he posts the most interesting stuff. Uh, he's, he's, he's a genius by way of advancing a kind of political understanding of the world simply through statistics measured over time. Like he has just every day a kind of new take on like, world hunger, human rights, um, politics, war. And in every instance, he's able to graph back to the, the dawn of information keeping and the trend in every case is positive. Right. And it's in some ways, he's the most optimistic person and he's just a scientist. He's just like, these are the numbers. Uh, but, but there's, there's social science numbers 
But here are, here are the statistics. Here are the numbers. Here's the demographics. It looks like this in every case. There's no instance except carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. <coughs> There's no instance where the trend is toward doom. The trend is always toward improvement. And that's the, that's the work we have to build upon. We're not about to descend into the the national socialist like end times that that it that it seems like we're on the cusp of just because the left is so organized and has so much authority and power like we are not we are not ruled from the center like the center takes its power from the from the the mass right in a way that wasn't true of germany then and is true of germany now and in a way wasn't true of the united states then and is true of it now so that's the you know that's our starting point but god to 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 be out in the public sphere and say what that practically means is like don't panic don't freak out don't yell at me for telling you not to panic you know the uh, you know to say don't panic the immediate response is someone saying well that's easy for you to say mm-hmm. because you're not lgbtq or you're not Muslim, or you don't, you know, as a white male, you have uh, the privilege to say, don't panic. And that's the, that's the contemporary left. And none of those things make sense to say, like to, to defend liberalism throughout time is not privilege. It is the, it is the essential truth of the matter. It's why we can even talk about, uh, those notions. It's why we have the freedoms we do today. It's a historical view and it's one that we should all take great pride in. But, you know, to imagine that, that the idea of, of saying, do not punch Nazis for the love of God. It's a dumb move. It's just a dumb move. And watching that guy do it. I know that kid. I know the kid that threw the punch. He's one of those fucking like he's a squatter who beats his girlfriend. Like how do you, how do you know? How do you know? Look at him. Look at him. He's a shitty person. You can just see he's a shitty person. He's somebody that's throwing a brick through the window of Nike town because he believes that that's the, the, that that's the work we have to do. That's how we're going to end global capitalism is by spray painting an anarchist sign on the front door of Nike town. Like I've been dealing with those people since I was that age. They're not even progressive, really. They're just, they just are shit disturbers. And, you know, he's not wearing that mask because he's truly, he's truly afraid that the police state is going to identify him for his peaceful marching. He's wearing that mask because because he thinks he's a, he's a cowboy and he's like, he's a, he's some kind of, uh, he's some kind of 
member of the resistance. You know, he's a he's a partisan <laughs> fighter on the barricades. Right. And it's like you dingaling. Uh there, there, there are a dozen Nazis on the other side of the barricades that think exactly the same thing about themselves. And I've known enough leftists whose leftism was absolutely unimpeachable on paper, but in person, they were the most misogynist people I ever met. They treated their girlfriends like shit. They treated the women in the, in the community like shit. They were aggro adrenal like dicks out a uh, quote unquote anarchist leftist, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But they're the worst. They're the worst. And they're nobody we should take pride in that. You know, if you are sitting around, particularly if your attitude about the world two months ago or, or one year ago was that we need to combat Domestic violence, we need to combat bullying, we need to, we, our mission in life as leftists is to eradicate rape culture and misogynistic violence and, and violence in schools, those three things alone. If that's your project, which it should be, how does that punch of that guy further any of those things? That punch of that guy just puts violence back front and center. And the fact that you think that it's a, that it's a just cause or that that guy deserves a punch, which he does, that guy deserves a punch, but that you can't, you know, you can't turn around and start talking about rape culture in the same moment. Mm -hmm. Like that guy's a raper. By all, by all of my uh, native assessment of a person. Okay. Because that's his, because that's his instinct. His instinct in seeing this guy and in disagreeing with him is to walk up to him and hit him without warning on the side of the face. Right. Like, who are those people? If not the people that bully in school, uh, abuse their you know, ab abuse women and are, you know, are, are products of, or are, are creating precisely the environment that we don't want. And it's, it's harder. It's harder not to punch the guy than it is to punch him. Right. And it's, I don't, you know, I don't care about the guy. I don't particularly care about the punch. What I don't believe is all of my liberal community, not just, enjoying the punch but mocking people on the left who say hey take a th second look at that you know uh, twitter is full of like this this uh leftist contentment at that kind of action and like dismissive uh stink face at anyone who who says this is this is not our language and it's the stink face that infuriates me because it because it represents uh i mean i think a fundamental failure to understand what our cause is and what our political language is right
But outside of my podcast with you, this isn't a thing I can effectively wait. This isn't a war. You're saying you can't communicate all of this in 140 characters on, on Twitter. No. And particularly not because the debate ends up being between me and a bunch of people that have 65 followers. Right. Um, and there's a lot of subtweeting that goes on like uh, a, a friend of mine on Twitter with the handle Moltz M O L T Z. Yeah. Uh, who generally I like on Twitter and we, we, uh, I mean, he comments on my stuff where we're generally allies, but he keeps retweeting people that are like, if that punch in the face hurt your feelings, how does it feel when the Mexican wall gets built? And it's like, it feels a little subtweety. But what I should. By the way, for, t- I feel like there's people in our audience who don't know what a subtweet is. That's it. Oh. Because we have a lot of the old folks in the audience. Oh, is that true? Mm-hmm. People like us. Uh, well, go ahead and describe a subtweet. You're, you're much uh, more uh, savvy. Well, I don't know about that. A, a subtweet is where somebody is responding to a tweet but not actually using the reply function and or not calling out the person in the way that you just described. So it's, right. it's a way to reply to what someone has said without obviously calling them out or, call, or doing it in a way that the author of the tweet won't ever learn about. It's almost, okay. almost like talking behind someone's back in a way, waiting for them to leave the room and then talking about them uh, as opposed to replying to them directly uh, in a way that they're still they're see they're still replying publicly yeah but they're not doing it in a way that is fair to the original tweeter so that they can see and potentially respond to to what's being said <laughs> and maybe <clears throat> maybe it's he's an not under, underhanded thing maybe he's not doing that you know and maybe a lot of the people that are doing it aren't doing it but i don't know how many people are out there arguing against the punch and certainly i i did it publicly and Moltz follows me and over time has, you know, we, we are following one another. We understand that we're in conversation with one another in the sense that everyone on Twitter is. So it does feel like a reply, but there's tons of that. There's tons of that happening. And that's like that kind of idea. Like, Oh, if that punch makes you sad, it's like that punch doesn't make me sad. Dummy. Like the war I'm fighting is the war. Like, I want to fight this war hard, you know, and when the, when the Nazis come with their guns, if the Nazis do, which I don't think they will, but if the Nazis come with their guns, like, do you have guns? I do. Like, I'm, I'm, I know how to fortify my neighborhood. I know which trees I'm going to cut down. You know, don't, it's not. I'm not boo-hoo-hooing. Like, I'm aggressively ready to take this war to every tower I can find. It's just like, think for a goddamn second about what we're trying to do. So, I should be writing editorials. I should be writing papers. Uh, But I've had a bad experience. With, online oh yeah writing something that people uh, disagree with and 
it it cauterized me somewhere. Like I don't want to be an enemy of the left. I know I'm not one. I know I am the heart and soul of of the left. Like I'm deeply, profoundly a lifelong member of the progressive coalition to make the world a better place. And I've thought a lot about it. And running for office was like a, a big part of trying to put my money where my mouth was. But these days, it's just so easy to get Bernie broed and to be described as a Nazi sympathizer. And then you're off to the races. And if you're, if we were living in 1965 and I was Norman Mailer, um, you get reviewed in the New York review of books, like, but you wouldn't wake up every morning and find your inbox full of people saying, you are complicit in genocide because you are like a pretty far left liberal middle class person who's got, who's advancing some theories about what our project is. And I don't, I don't have the, I don't have the resilience to either write about that stuff and put it out there and not have any kind of social media access to myself where people can just throw burning shit on me or to sit there and take it to be a Michael Ian black and to sit there for eight hours a day replying to right to hostile tweets. Like I don't want either thing. And, and honestly, like, the the reeducation that happened to me and to a lot of people my age as a result of the white privilege um the way that that white privilege conversation was framed because it was framed in a in a novel way it's not that it's not that we haven't all worked our whole lives to advance the cause of justice but the way that that conversation was framed, that it's um, it, it absolutely is an encouragement to reflect upon your prior assumptions and your prior gifts and the the ease and access that that I have, for instance, that affects my ability to be truly neutral or to be, you know, to advance a case if I haven't reflected on it. Then, then that coloration somewhat invalidates the premise of here's how easy it is to do X or here's how, um, you know, here's the obvious next move, right? Unchecked privilege. But having, uh, but the value of, of that privilege conversation is to produce that, that enlightenment and to produce that desire to be reeducated 
or to take everything, to take new things into account, new information into account. The value of the white privilege notion is not to, con- to continue to use that denunciation as a cudgel to silence people. The idea is not to say your white privilege therefore makes anything you say and all your thoughts and contributions invalid. It's the premise of it is, hey, take another look at yourself before you weigh in, before you step into these conversations with your, um, with your unreflected upon advantages. But having reflected upon it, the, I mean, you hopefully are encouraging people to do that reflection with the idea that they're going to contribute better. It's going to improve their participation in right, society. Right. Not eliminated, but, but really fast, the, the white privilege conversation became a, a way to dismiss your opponent, your opponent who is also on the left and is also trying to accomplish the same goals, you know? Right. It because became, it's like a, a sub, a sub opponent. Mm-hmm. And, and you're, and it isn't even that the person is really your opponent. It's just that. People love to silence people. You know, it's one of the, it's one of the instincts we have is just like, Oh, sorry. You know, no redheads allowed in this conversation because redheads are gross. They're freckled skin. Like it's a, you know, it's an, it's an, it, it ultimately is an elitist direction to say that. Although, you know, like Merlin and I used to, we obviously we all uh, in our forties grew up in a world where we called each other fags. And by the time Merlin and I started our podcast, we already had been woke enough to know that yeah, we don't call each other fags anymore. We made that argument through the early nineties. Like, well, that's not, we're not actually talking about gay people. We're just saying like some people are fags. You know what I mean? Like they're not, it's not about being gay. It's like that was a faggy thing to do or, you know, blah, blah, blah. like we, that was the world I grew up in. That was, that was part the common parlance. Like we, we called each other fags more than we used almost any other word. And I think into the, into the early two thousands, there was still, there were still a lot of people of my generation who really wanted to stand their ground on that word in particular. Like we want to make clear that this is, we're talking about a separate category of things. We're arguing a thing that's like, that's dumb to argue, but it matters to us. Two words, two words, actually fag and retard. Oh yeah. Because everybody was a retard and everybody was a fag. And then somewhere in the mid 2000s, like collectively, we got it like, oh, it the utility of that word is not the point. It is you're establishing in that kind of discourse just a general. Like a general feeling of intolerance and insult in our culture that that isn't first isn't necessary and second creates an environment that's that's unhealthy and unholy you know just it's so simple just eliminate it just eliminate that way 
of talking. And it happened. You know, it re-educated a generation of people that we weren't homophobes. We just had, we, it was just like the, it was like the liberals of the sixties that were like, no, we don't call it, we don't use the word Negro anymore. Now we say black person. And then at a certain point it was, oh, we don't say black person. You know, that process of re-education happened to us in real time within the last 10 years. And even in the early days of Merlin's and my podcast, there was a kind of casual reference to that conversation where he and I, and, and, you know, there was a, an undercurrent of kidding that was both aware of the, the progressive motion and also critiquing it or, you know, or, um, or defying it a little bit. And then he and I went through a subsequent or continuation of that re-education so that we stopped playing that game. Even we realized we, we weren't advancing the cause of progress by being snarky about a desire to rid the language of slur. Um, and that re-education was in, you know, in some ways that has been the, the cause of this generation of, um, activists and removing that slur from the language also removes the tendency to, to practice that slur in the culture just in subtle ways. You know, you don't practice that slur now. And that advanced the cause of um, unisex bathrooms then became a very easy leap for us to make because we'd already, we'd already realized like, Oh, these small things really matter. Like representation matters. Small matters are, uh, have, have big effects and, and it's easy. It's just easy to do. It's not hard to implement. To stand your ground on gendered bathrooms is just like, why waste your time? My God, it's like, couldn't be simpler. Maybe at a baseball stadium where there's giant pissoirs, like there should always be pissoirs because people that stand up to pee should not have their own little rooms to do it. They should stand only slightly concealed in a place where the wind can blow through and they should piss into a trough. That's just like, that's basic civilization. Those should be everywhere. <laughs> downtown Seattle should have 25 pissoirs, just like downtown Paris. Is a pissoir the same thing as a urinal? <clears throat> it's a urinal that has no accoutrement. Like there's no flushing. There's no, in Paris, there are these places where it's just kind of a screen and it's not even much of a screen. Like you can still see the person's shoes. You're walking downtown and there's just this little, it's like a phone booth and you step into it and nobody can see you clearly and you pee against a pee against a little screen and then you're done. 
And it just, what it does is it eliminates people peeing in alleys because that's just a, you know, people are, if you, if there's no place to pee, you're going to go pee in an alley. Half of the people that are peeing out there would rather go pee in an alley than pee in a Starbucks. Um, but if you put these little sheds and the thing is they don't need to have a door. They don't really even need to be maintained except every, every three hours, some something goes push. They're just like, they're in a way they seem like a retreat from civilization. They seem like some kind of Roman empire thing, but that's just advancing the livability of cities because the peeing's going to happen. And right now in Seattle, there are whole like in pioneer square in Seattle. If you go into any alley down there, it's a hundred years worth of urine. The alleys are uninhabitable. You can't even walk through them. Cause it's just like it's a hundred years of people pissing. If there were two pissoirs in pioneer square, uh, it would eliminate that problem. Anyway, that's, a, that's by way of saying transgender bathrooms are easy to do. You just make all bathrooms transgender and then you put pissoirs around done. The only people that need to use the bathroom are people that sit down to go to the bathroom. And anybody that stands up to go to the bathroom could, should just go into this little corrugated metal. And this, this would solve what exactly? Well, most of the activity that happens in a men's room is peeing. Like I would estimate 85% of men's room activity is peeing. Right. It's it's definitely not washing your hands. I'll add that. Right. If you, if you go to any event where there's no line at the men's room and there's a line of 40 women, right? Like going from foot to foot, waiting in this line for the five stalls in the women's room. And there are five stalls in the men's room, but there are urinals in the men's room. And so the stalls are largely unused and there's no line in the men's room because guys walk in, they pee, they walk out. And those five stalls in the men's room should be available to all. You know, that space should be available to everybody that needs to sit down to pee. And the urinals should be like right out on the sidewalk or just like elsewhere. It should be a separate, a separate notion. The urinals don't need to be near the potties. They got nothing to do with the potties. It's a thing that, that requires like standing up to pee requires almost no infrastructure. Whereas a bathroom, like, yeah, that's a big operation. And I was at some event the other day, like a fancy museum event. And it was a, it was a very mixed crowd. And it was one of these situations where there's, there's 40 people in line in the women's room. And two of those people were my daughter and her mother. And I waltzed into the men's room and peed and waltzed out and I felt awful. I felt stupid, first of all, and awful at, I mean, talk about privilege 
to not have to wait in line at the bathroom. I mean, it's a, that's a phenomenal privilege. And I can't imagine being a woman standing in that line and watching these men go in and out of their little pissoir, their little, their little piss house. And knowing that in there, there are five out of seven stalls, either empty or being used by somebody to pee while you wait 20 minutes to go to the bathroom. Like that's a form of fucking torture to deny people access to a bathroom. It just seems like we're, that's an example of where we're just doing it wrong. And the, the lack of equality in access to bathrooms is a, is a, um, culture wide slap in the face, you know, the culture wide failure to understand that fully half of our citizens need a different accommodation. Um, so, but all by way of saying like to be woke is first of all, there's a certain, there, there are only so many people who can be woked. If you're resistant to being woked, like yelling at you or shaming you. Is going to have like a, a there. Uh, there are diminishing returns there, you know. Like somebody like me, who was initially like in general supported the idea of wokeitude, but also wanted some accommodations for the way that I'd always talked. Like a little bit, and it wasn't the shaming that did it. It was a little bit of reflecting on it and saying, and, and reflecting on it over time. Like, honestly, and it's embarrassing to say now, but embarrassing, like, I'm not ashamed of it, but, but it's embarrassing to think that in the early 2000s, within my rock and roll group of friends and people, my sort of universal farewell to my gang as I left was, see you faggots later. And it was shortened at a certain point to syphil. And we would all just say syphil to each other. And it's, and that was already at a point where to say the word faggot felt, um, felt a little bit like a, it was almost like it, it felt like a political statement. Like I'm not going to get politically corrected. I'm a liberal and everything, but I'm not one of these fucking crazy college uh, nut jobs who are censoring the language. And I, you know, not only wasn't I alone, but Dan Savage, the, the, a, a man that I think did more to advance the cause of just general acceptance of everyone than any other American and any other living human being like Dan Savage and his column his sex advice column put in front of us all the 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 great panoply of human like impulse and human desire he he blew my mind nobody woke me as much as dan savage and dan throughout the 2000s was like give me a break i've 
I've been a faggot my whole life and everybody that I know is a faggot. And what's your, you know, like get off of it. And he got, and, and, and ultimately it was the word tranny that changed Dan's mind because he grew up in a culture. I mean, and he was, uh, he was a drag queen in his young life and he continued to use the word tranny and did it at a certain point in a, in a way that he felt like was a protest for reason. And the tide changed and he encountered a whole new generation of people that continue, that considered that truly a slur hmm. on the, on the, uh, on the level of nigger. Like they couldn't hear it without it, without feeling like a whole, a whole world of, oppression and he eventually came around and in some ways in some cultures of young people dan is considered a pariah or like like a uh, like an old he's considered an old right and i swear to you there every one of those people that considers dan savage an old is living in a world partly created by dan savage right, right. but he he took a while to come around to this new language and so did i but it was because I wanted to, I wanted to be better. I wanted to be good and stuck to my guns because I thought I was fighting on behalf of a kind of, a kind of justice, a kind of belief that censorship of language is authoritarian by its nature. And I'm, I'm not and have never been a hundred percent convinced by the theorization that language creates reality. But in this case, I realized it, the, the, I was, I was pissing up a rope or I was tilting at windmills here. It didn't, the, I, this is not a thing I should expend any effort defending because it serves nothing. And, even if the potential consequences as described are um, over dramatized, even if there are any consequences, even if it makes one person feel bad, why the fuck do it? But to continue to use white privilege or wokeness or these things past the point of having made that initial impression on someone and having said, Hey, this is in your hands now. This is, you know, you understand now what white privilege is. It's up to you to think about it and make the change. Like that's the nature of progressive change. It isn't to put people in camps who don't follow the prescription. It is to offer that enlightenment and then presume that, that people generally have the, well, that people have the autonomy and the will to come to those conclusions on their own, to, to reflect on it and make those decisions, each person in their own time and in their own way. And to set, um, to set loyalty tests, or in particular to do the leftist favorite pastime, which is to critique each person's every statement. <laughs> right. Uh, according to your own personal reflection on what those things mean, 
Like each of us goes through that process individually and then immediately begins applying what our, you know, what our small and independent reflection on that means applying that template to everyone else's speech. And that's intrinsically illiberal and whether or not. And and so it doesn't matter that it's in the service of what people think is a progressive idea because the, the, you know, this is the ends justify the means question and the means matter. Like liberalism is all about the means way more than it is about the ends. Because like fascism is about the ends and doesn't care about the means and liberalism is about the means. 